and um, and that was when I when I did uh, quite an intensive period of, of work, uh, both in North and South Sudan, but mainly in Southern Sudan. Um, and that was back in 2005, immediately after the signing of the, uh, well, actually for a year before the signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. And I was very much involved in the, in the terms and the arrangements around the peace agreement between North and South Sudan, most of which took place in Kenya, actually, near Russia. Um, but, uh, the, so that's the background to why I'm here now, really, is that I was involved in the peace agreement between North and South. I was involved in uh, preparing the southern government for government, because uh, until that time, they didn't have a government. Uh, the entire country, of course, was ruled from the north. Um, one of the um, concessions, one of the terms of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement was that there should be a government of southern Sudan, uh, even during this six-year interim period uh, that they established. And the interim period started in 2005, and it was a six-year period during which you would have a federal government, if you like, of, of southern Sudan. And during that six years, the southerners would be deciding whether or not they were going to have an independent country or whether they were going to be part of Sudan as a whole. So it was a, a six-year um, uh, decision phase, if you like, uh, that was going to start, start in 2005 and end uh, this year. Now, as you know, the outcome of that is that the southerners have decided to, uh, to go for independence. And it's very likely that on July the 9th this year, independence will be declared as a result of a referendum that was held earlier, uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, so that's the end of this six-year uh, period. Uh, and it's, very, um, it's been very interesting looking at, the, at what's happened over that six-year period because you started almost from scratch. You, you know, this is a southern government which didn't exist until 2005, which uh, not only didn't exist, but was built up from the bottom upwards with people who had no knowledge and no experience whatsoever of running a government. Uh, and everything, almost everything, was from scratch. And it's very unique in that sense, because this is a country that, you know, I mean, obviously there's been a, a northern government for many, many years, and there have been individuals from the south who've been part of that government. But there's never been a government of Southern Sudan, and, and uh, uh, it's one thing having a, a very small number of elite, elites who, who, who run more or less everything, but it's another thing having uh, an entirely new country emerging in a period of only six years and trying to decentralize your government to all these different uh, provinces in the south, and then finding, not surprisingly, that the capacity to actually run that government is extremely low, and still is extremely low. So if one were being very, very pessimistic, you would say uh, that uh, they're heading for trouble. Uh, but if you're optimistic, you, you would say, well, here's a country that's, you know, that, that, that has everything going for it in one sense, and, and, uh, uh, and there's a great deal of enthusiasm for, for the formation of this new state of southern Sudan. So that's the, that's the sort of context of it. Um, but what, what I wanted to do was to, um, in a sense, just to, to kick off from where Hugo Slim left last time, and those of you who were here listening to Hugo 
will know that he talked about uh, what, it was, what it was to be a humanitarian. And towards the end of that talk, we started to uh, discuss the, the modern um, take on humanitarianism. In other words, we started to ask the question, well, why is it that, that aid in general has become much more <laughs> politicized than uh, much more politicized than it used to be? Um, 20 years ago, it used to be perfectly acceptable for aid organizations to go into countries like Sudan um, and do nothing but pure aid, if you understand what I mean. In other words, you know, they could, they could be involved in, in, in just doing a health program or education program or a feeding program or something like that and not have anything whatsoever to do with the, with the political uh, environment around them. That is uh, long since gone. In fact, uh, in the last 10 years in particular, there's been an increasing amount of um, concern from aid organizations that they haven't actually engaged enough in the political process uh, because uh, everything they do is ultimately political. Uh, it, it has a knock-on effect. And aid itself now has become a resource, particularly in poor countries like uh, uh, Sudan, a resource which is uh, very visible and can be manipulated by one or another political party um, and certainly cannot be divorced from the political process that's happening on the ground. And that means not only the political process, but also the, 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 the conflict process, if you like, that is taking place on the ground. Um, that's not to say <coughs> that aid is, is always a source of conflict. That's a different matter. Uh, it is occasionally a source of conflict, and if it is, then, then some serious questions have to be asked. But... It's, it's more the fact that um, once, you are, once you have uh, a resource on the ground and you have people on the ground, what happens is that uh, you become a center of um, uh, attraction. You, you, you can, in many ways, um, attract populations to, to, to the centers that you're running or the whatever activity it is that you're running. And as a result of that, uh, you, you, you also become um, you know, quite sort of an attraction, if you like, for, for those who, who are trying to make problems. But I think, moreover, the, 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 the really real reason why aid has become more political is because aid agencies, and particularly um, Europeans and Americans or whatever, they are increasingly becoming the witnesses to a number of activities that are taken, a number of um, uh, events that are happening on the ground. And it's this, this witness function which is both uh, worrying for perpetrators of conflict, uh, but also encouraging for those who, uh, wish, who don't wish to get caught in the midst of this conflict. Um, so this, as, as Hugo was, last, at the last talk, we were just getting onto this business about advocacy and why it is that a number of organizations now have shifted uh, away from just pure um, development activities, if you like, into, into advocacy, into publicizing what they do on the ground, and trying to persuade uh, the international community as well as the national community to change their mode of behavior uh, as a result of, uh, of what they have seen for themselves and can actually witness and, uh, and write about themselves um, from what they've seen. So 
there is that increasing function, that advocacy function, which goes side by side with aid. Uh, and many of the organisations like Oxfam and, and, and others, of course, uh, they, they don't see a contradiction between those two. Um, in fact, they, they almost in everywhere they operate, they have this parallel function um, of giving assistance, but also, also um, writing uh, and advocating for change. Um, and of course, this, this, this isn't exclusively to, to, to the aid organizations. I mean, there are some think tank bodies and, and uh, bodies like Human Rights Watch, whose job it is exclusively to do that. Um, but I think the, the important thing is that um, they are, these organizations are getting more of a voice and more of a hearing at some of the higher levels as well, including the, the uh, General Assembly of the United Nations, etc., uh, which will frequently quote reports from organizations that 10 or 15 years ago probably would never have got that kind of uh, coverage. So. Um, so there's, there's, a, uh, there's an increased interest in having independent reports on conflict areas, on uh, violations of human rights, etc. But there's also the fact that go, what goes with that is a greater amount of responsibility for those organisations that are engaged in that type of process. Um, so back to, to Southern Sudan. Um, well... The, the history of Saddam, I won't, I won't take you through the entire history, <laughs> otherwise we'll be here all afternoon at least, um, but you should remember that, that this is a country that has actually been uh, in a state of war for quite a long time between North and South. It goes all the way back to independence in 1956, really. Uh, there was a 10-year period um, when they reached an agreement back in, in, uh, in 83, which, which gave them... Um, uh, a ten-year gap, if you like, in the, in, the, in the intensive side of the conflict between North and South. Uh, but it resumed again ten years later. Uh, and in fact, even during that ten years, there were, there were quite a few incidents that, that was showed that there was a rising tension. Um, it all goes back even further in history, uh, because certainly when the British um, condominium, it, was, it wasn't actually a, strictly speaking, it wasn't um, a colony. Britain, it was a condominium, it was called a condominium, and it was a, a, an arrangement between Egypt and, and Britain, but um, for all intents and purposes it was a colonised country. Um, and during that colonisation process, uh, the British uh, wanted at certain points to try to separate the South off completely from the North, because it believed that British East Africa would absorb Southern Sudan. And so there was uh, a period when they drew up borders along the north-south line and kept the south closed, and then they was literally called the closed district policy, um, and prevented traders, including Arab traders, from going south. Now, the reason I mention that is because the knock-on effect of that is still being felt today. Um, one of the very reasons why southern Sudan was, has been very underdeveloped is because of policies which have actually prevented, uh, if you like, a natural um, trading and a natural interaction between the North and South. Um, and so consequently, there is quite a, a, a huge difference in the 
development, levels of development in North and South. Um, and what it did mean is also that there was a huge amount of migration that took place between the southern Sudan and the north. Um, and people looking for work would come up to the north because obviously that's where the money was. And coming to recent history, when they, when they uh, discovered oil, for example, there was even greater amounts of wealth that was accumulating in the north and it was possible for the southerners to come up and find work and <coughs> construction industries, etc., etc. So the boom that hit... Uh, Sudan in the 1990s and early 2000s um, was a benefit not only for the north but also for people who, were, who, who wanted to get work. So there have been a huge southern population in the north Sudan. Um, and recently, given this whole referendum business and the, and the pending independence of the south, um, there's a lot of those people who have moved back again to the south. But, but quite a lot of have, have remained behind, and that was understandable, and it was understood that, that that would be the case. But there's been this worry about, well, if we stay behind, will we retain our, our southern citizenship? What, what, in other words, what will be our citizenship rights? Are we going to be northerners, or are we going to be southerners, or, or are we going to be given, uh, or, or worse still, are we going to be uh, thrown out, just as, uh, just as happened between the Eritreans and the Ethiopians during their war? Um, so... Uh, there's, and this, this incident has not been entirely resolved. Um, there's still uh, some questions hanging over what happens to the southerners who decided to stay in the north. Um, but there have been a significant number of those returning to the south, both from refugee camps and also from the camps in, the, in, the, uh, in, Kar in and around Khartoum. And uh, this move of people has meant that the population of southern Sudan has increased uh, quite substantially over the last couple of years, two, three years, um, since the peace agreement. Um, and this is now going to be um, a cause of contention to some extent, because people are coming back after, in some cases, being away for a long, long period of time, um, coming back to their uh, traditional areas where they held land, and finding, not surprisingly, that some of that land has already been taken by others, uh, some of the land has been left just fallow, and uh, so there's, there's nothing there. Um, the other thing that's very important in the south is, is the ownership of cattle. And uh, the ownership of cattle, rather than being uh, diverse ownership as, as we had up until some years ago, um, now is concentrated very much in the hands of a few people. Um, so um, a few individuals hold vast amounts of cattle. And this in itself is, is causing major um, cultural problems in the South because Southerners, in order to get bride wealth, for example, they will need to have, young men will need to have cattle. And if they don't have access to cattle, then inevitably what's happening is that people are turning to violence, to cattle rustling, to uh, criminality, criminality, in order to obtain some of the basic means whereby they can, uh, uh, they can assert themselves as individuals, get married, etc. Um, so that's a situation that is, that is emerging, and, and, um, and we saw, we've seen a lot of that over the last uh, two or three years, um, quite worrying, this, this business about how do, you, how do you resettle a huge population in a country where the 
the, um, the underlying cultural norms have not changed dramatically, and yet the demography of the place has changed quite dramatically. Um, not only do you have that whole business about cattle and ownership, whatever, and land ownership, but you also have the shift towards the urban areas. Um, Juba and Bor and, and these sort of areas, which Malakal, which, which towns which uh, used to be just small towns are now becoming quite substantial towns because people are um, people from the, the camps who lived in camps all their, uh, all their lives in some cases uh, are now coming back and being much more attracted to staying in an urban context than they are in a rural context. Um, so there's these, these kind of pressures are happening in southern Sudan. And um, one, of the, um, one of the things that we looked at uh, recently was what, uh, to what extent has the international community uh, recognized these problems and to what extent has the aid apparatus, the aid, the aid from the international community, how has it adapted to these problems? Has it actually responded to these? Has it actually reacted by, by changing the, the, the way in which aid is, is usually uh, uh, delivered? And the general answer to it is no. Uh, there have not been any major differences in the way that aid's been delivered over the last five or six years. Uh, and therefore, there's not been a significant reaction to the underlying reasons for conflict in the South. Um, and that's quite worrying, because it's, we have a situation where everybody, um, at the time of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement in 2005, everybody was thinking, well, now we have a peace agreement. Now we have peace. Uh, and everybody was talking about post-conflict Sudan. And they were talking about reconstruction, rehabilitation. Incidentally, there was nothing to re in the South at all. Um, the, the South was, was in such a state that there really you know, it, was a, it was a wrong terminology to use. But the point was that the international aid community was very much in that sort of buoyant state of, of well, we'll bring in... Um, uh, lots of resources for education and health and, and we'll build some roads here and we'll clear the mines there, etc., etc., and then everything will be fine. Um, what they didn't appreciate was that uh, there was an underlying problem, cultural problem, an underlying tribal, intertribal problem, which was going to raise its head at some point. And indeed that happened. Um, we foresaw it back in 2008, we, a few of us foresaw it back in 2005, but not enough, uh, because uh, what happened was that in 2008, there was a great increase in violence in southern Sudan. And the huge increase in violence in 2008, 2008, 2009, through till now, in fact, has not been because of the North-South conflict. It's been because of internal problems in southern Sudan. It's south-south problems. Um, <coughs> some of it is, has been manipulated by the north-south issue. In other words, there have been some political leaders who've armed certain groups against other groups, etc., etc., in order to gain some kind of political favor. Uh, there's been these sort of proxy type of war type of situation going on. But for the most part, uh, these are problems that are long-term, they haven't just happened now. They're long-term issues of 
um, things such as cattle ownership, things such as land ownership, things such as intertribal um, conflicts over um, border areas. When I say borders, I don't mean the border, I mean border areas between certain, certain um, uh, uh, provinces and certain sub-provinces within, the, within uh, the South. The South is divided now into 10 states, what they call states, um, but it, that's a relatively recent thing. Um, there, there are still the traditional boundaries, which are more or less tribal boundaries, um, and it's the uh, the incursions across those traditional boundaries which is causing a lot of problems. It's mostly to do with uh, where you go and feed you, take your cattle and, and you, where you graze, um, but it can also be about other things as well. Um, but certainly, um, those sort of problems have been a misunderstood and B, um, actually, um, I, would, I would say neglected in the sense that uh, everybody had their eyes on the North-South issue. And when the Comprehensive Peace Agreement took place, most of the donors, the international donors, were under an obligation to keep that Comprehensive Peace Agreement alive. In other words, to look at the terms of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement and to say, right, now we are under, as, as international uh, donors, we are under obligation to, to um, maintain the terms of that agreement. And of course, one of the terms of that agreement was uh, that they have to, for, that, for this interim period of, of, of uh, five, six years, they had to assume that Sudan would remain as one country. Because the six-year interim period was supposed to be a test of the idea of unity. Um, so international donors were right up until yesterday, well actually right up until January the 9th um, uh, this year, right up until January the 9th this year, were officially obliged to recognize the possibility that Sudan could remain as one country. So there was a, a pressure on them not to get involved in anything that would bolster the independence, if you like, of the southern government. They could talk about um, the apparatus of, of, a, of a federal government structure. They could talk about building capacities and training and, and all these kind of things. But what they could not do was to get involved in anything that would be seen to be somehow leading towards independence in the south. Now that's quite interesting because actually, when I, as I mentioned about these uh, these issues of, of, of conflict, um, the one thing that was really missing throughout all of this period from 2008, when the when the conflict erupted again, the one thing that was really missing in the south was uh, a proper approach towards security. I'm talking about you know um, stable security now. Um, they, there were still the remnants of the guerrilla army, the SPLA, the Sudan People's Liberation Army. They are still there. They were still operating as if they were still at war. In other words, they were still operating as a guerrilla army. They were not operating as a national army. They had not been given assistance to operate as a national army for the reasons that I said, that the, the international donors were, were reticent about you know, touching anything that would look like that looked like uh, bolstering you know, the, the, the independence uh, lobby. So 
so we had a situation where where the SPLA were uh, still essentially operating like um, like a guerrilla army, uh, very poorly disciplined, poorly equipped, and whenever there were problems um, that erupted, and of course these are erupting, you know, on a, all over the place, and, and in some cases unpredictably erupting. But whenever there was a problem, what actually happened was that the governors of the different states uh, in the south would simply look to where their local SPLA uh, division was, and they would use them almost as a private army uh, and ask them to go and sort out this problem or that problem out in the field um, without necessarily going through anything like a central structure um, and also without any safeguards over the behavior of the SPLA. So one consequence of this was that, and this is not always happening, but it did happen quite often, was one consequence, was that the SPLA itself became uh, a predatory force. It became something that people, on the, ordinary people on the ground, began to fear, because the behaviour of this ill-disciplined guerrilla army was something that people, uh, you know, considered to be, I mean, and there were definitely cases of um, human rights um, violations. There were definitely cases of, of, of criminality within the SPLA itself. So the SPLA, rather than being a national army that people could turn to and look to for, for uh, security, became in itself a threat to the people. Just as much as a threat, in a sense, as some of the, as some of the armed uh, young men who were coming uh, in with their guns to steal cattle from neighboring tribes or wherever. So there, were, there was a, almost like a double threat on people. So we had a situation, I'm going back to that, that business about who came down from the south and were returning displaced people. We had quite a lot of secondary displacement. In other words, you arrive back in your village, having been a, a refugee for 20 years, you arrive back in your village, you're just getting settled in your village, and the next thing you know, somebody's coming in with guns, you don't know who it is, it could be from a neighboring tribe, it could actually be just people who've broken off from the SPLA and, and are engaged in criminality. But for whatever reason, your community becomes insecure and you decide to move on. So there was secondary displacement taking place in many, in many parts of southern Sudan where people were actually driven out of their villages once again and came to Juba or came to the towns. Uh, so this was very, quite a worrying development. The question is, how did the international community uh, respond? Well, we had in southern Sudan, we had what was called, what is called UNMIS, which is the United Nations Mission um, in Sudan, which is, was set up as part of this uh, comprehensive peace agreement. Uh, it was supposed to be a peacekeeping force. It was supposed to be positioned in the areas where there was most likely to be violence. The first thing that went wrong was they put them in the wrong place um, because they put them in the towns uh, and they established garrisons around the main towns. And of course, that wasn't where most of the problems were. That was uh, most of the problems were way out in the, in the countryside. They didn't have, uh, well, they had a mandate to respond to that, but they didn't uh, enact that mandate. They didn't use that mandate. So what they tended to do was to have these international forces, mostly made up of Africans, but some internationals as well, 
um, and uh, they were they were positioned in these garrisons, and they didn't move out of those garrisons. Um, and consequently, as a peacekeeping force, they only literally kept the peace wherever the garrison was. They didn't go out into the countryside. They didn't respond to to um, incursions or violence as, as it occurred. And so nobody could look to the to them either for protection. So you see the situation emerging. You've got you've got a. a, a sort of a, a, a very loose SPLA, which in some cases is, becomes an enemy. You've got uh, people, armed individuals, and by the way, the number of arms in Southern Sudan has increased hugely over the last 10, 10 years, small arms I'm talking about. So you've got people who, who are armed to the teeth, especially with, small, with uh, automatic weapons. Um, and you've got a situation where the UN peacekeeping force is not able to respond to these problems. So uh, there was quite naturally a, 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 quite a large amount of despondency towards um, towards the, uh, the the government, the new newly emerging government of Southern Sudan, and quite a lot of frustration uh, expressed by people because they were just saying, well. So where, where is our protection? If, we, if, if our security is our, prime, our primary concern, then who's actually responding to that? And nobody is. Uh, was, or if they were, it was on a very ad hoc basis. Meanwhile, the international community carried on putting money into education and health and all the sort of usual stuff uh, without necessarily looking at this kind of thing, this security issue. Um, and... Therein lies one of the, the great sort of um, dilemmas, if you like, in the, in the aid world, not just in Sudan, but, but in other parts of the world as well. And that is that um, uh, doing conventional aid is all very well, but in a conflict environment, how do you accommodate that conventional aid by having... Uh, other forms of aid which can, which can bolster or, or support uh, a security system to enable the ordinary aid to be more successful. The reason I, I, I let me give you a more concrete example instead of talking theoretically. Uh, we went out to uh, Upper Nile, for example, and we found uh, three or four schools, very good schools actually, um, I mean for Southern Sudan, pretty good schools. I mean there, was, there were brick buildings, they were beautifully made, nice all paid for by international donors. Um, all the equipment, everything there, but they were empty. Why were they empty? Because the children who came to the school had to come some miles, in some cases, to that school. They were very happy to come, they wanted to come, but there'd been uh, three or four incidents of violence along the road, and their parents they said, no, you can't go to school anymore. So, you have beautiful buildings, nobody there. Meanwhile, the, the uh, governors of the, of, in, in Upper Nile were saying, well, yeah, but actually we could keep those schools open if we had uh, a security force that could just keep that road safe for the children to walk along to get to school. The problem is that uh, two things. First of all, the road is so poor that, that if anything happened, uh, we couldn't get to it quick enough because there'd be huge great potholes in the road and so nobody's bothered to do anything about that but also um, that the police force is in such a poor state that police, using the police to, to deal with that kind of situation would be almost like adding oil to the fire, you know. Um, but 
But uh, so, so the governors themselves recognized the problem and said, well, it's all very well you coming in with your fancy schools and your clinics and whatever, but meanwhile, um, they're not being used because there is this security issue and there's nothing that I've got as, as a governor, there's no, there's no aid that I'm given to bolster the security system to enable those places to stay open. So, uh, and of course, you know, they didn't know where to go because there was no, don if you went to donors, even if you went back to Juba and you, you, you argued this case in Juba, donors would usually say, well, actually, we've been, we've been putting our money into these, uh, what they call pooled funds, which is sort of joint funds, all the, all the donors put into one, into one pot. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's the people who run that that decide where to put the money. Well, of course, most of that money was already uh, preordained, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was for education or it was for health or it was for this or it was for that. It was already determined how to spend that money way back in 2005 in some cases. So you have this problem of, of donors saying, well, we've already given all of our money um, to, this, to this pot and we are not entirely in control of how that's spent. Um, but the World Bank is, or somebody like that. Well, of course, you know, the World Bank is the last institution in the world to have to deal with local incursions of violence. I mean, it was, you know, they, 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 have, they haven't a clue, you know. They don't even know Sudan. They've never been in Sudan. Um, uh, the World Bank, right up until very, very recently, their country office for Sudan was in Addis Ababa. You know, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's entirely the wrong institution to be, to be um, dealing with this kind of thing. Uh, but on the other hand, um, uh, there were some donors, including the British government, who, who did recognise the problem and then tried to come around the problem by creating other small funds. And, and, uh, and also, incidentally, the British government was be, has been uh, doing some of this reform process within the SPLA, but only at the very top end, only at the only at sort of Juba end at the moment. That's, that's just one of the realities of how slowly this process is, is, uh, is, is operating. But... Um, but the, 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 the issue then becomes, well, okay, if, if there aren't any obvious donors for this, then how do you respond to it? Well, of course, the, the other thing you have to remember is that the wealth agreement that came out of the 2005, um, the 2005 peace agreement allowed 50% of the oil wealth of Sudan to go to the south. So the southern government itself has been sitting on a large amount of money. It's about $6.7 billion dollars. Probably more than that now, actually. I think and this, if you count this year, coming up to about $7.5 billion has gone to the South Sudan over the last five or six years, which is a very, very significant amount of money. Um, it's uh, incidentally, per capita, makes Southern Sudan richer than Kenya. Uh, and if you're ever wondering, if, you, if people say to you, well, Southern Sudan is a very, very poor country, remember this there are remittances going out of Southern Sudan into Kenya, not the other way around. The moment. Uh, this country is not poor per capita. It's very rich per capita. Uh, but the dissemination or the, the distribution of that wealth is, is, of course, concentrated in very, very few hands and in very few places, more to the point. I mean, Juba has got this enormous buildings going up and white vehicles driving around everywhere. But you don't have to go very far out of Juba to find absolutely nothing. So, you have a situation where there has been quite a lot of money going into southern Sudan. Uh, almost all of it has been wrapped up in a huge civil service um, and the army. 
the SPLA. Because for the first time, the SPLA has started to get regular wages. So that's another reason why the SPLA didn't reduce in size, was because they were getting $300 a month on an average salary for a soldier. And, uh, and for the first time in their lives, they, and incidentally, the SPLA is not just the SPLA as, we, you know, as, a, as an army, but it's also for every one person who's got a gun in his hand, there's another you know, 20 people behind him, family members, whatever, who are depending on that salary. So, so when, you, when, you, when you talk about um, an army like the SPLA and South Sudan, you're talking about you know, sustaining about at least half the population of the, of the whole country. That's why it's very, very difficult to downsize armies in, in contexts like this. Um, so, uh, you, you had a situation where the southern government had lots of money, but it was tied up in salaries and in the army defense. Um, and donors then realized that they were basically going to be the only people to spend money on social services. And that has indeed been the case. And now about 25% of the government budget is accommodated by international donors. And we never foresaw that. Back in 2005, when we were doing this whole peace negotiation, we actually thought, quite optimistically at the time, we thought that with all this oil money coming in, international donors will become less and less important. What's actually happened is they've become more and more important um, because of the unforeseen uh, level of expenditure that, that, that's carried on in the South, but also because actually oil prices have plummeted in, in, in 2008 and it didn't do them any favours, that didn't, because the actual amount of money that they had available went quite dramatically, went down. Um, so, that's the situation as it is of today in southern Sudan. Um, there's this huge optimism for, for a new, newly emerging country, uh, a great amount of euphoria over the fact that people have had an opportunity to vote for a new country. They'll be declaring their independence on July the 9th, uh, but they will still be one of the poorest countries in, in, the, in the world. They will still only have a few kilometers of hard road. They will still only have uh, very, very basic uh, education, even among those people who are actually running the country, let alone those people who are you know, out in the, in the uh, provinces. But, um, so it's going to take a long, long time for southern Sudan to get to any state of, of normality, in a sense. So um, there's going to be quite a high dependence on international assistance in the country for quite some years yet. The question is now, um, does, does the international community get more involved in those issues of security? Um, the answer is, from our side, uh, from the, the study that we did and the evaluation that we did, is yes, they should. They should get more involved. Uh, and uh, they should uh, bite the bullet and say, so to speak, and say, look, you know, this is what's at stake here. We must get, mu we must get much more involved in, in, in building up a viable police force and a viable army uh, and, and, and uh, ensure that the security, and it's not only the security apparatus, it's also the judicial apparatus. I mean, it's also the what, what happens when people do commit crimes 
At the moment, you know, the judicial apparatus in Southern Sudan is so poor that you have you haven't a clue what to do with somebody other than to throw them into one of the prisons, which are also appalling. But but uh, you know, there's there's no there's no sort of system for dealing with with criminality. So um, so that's really an urgent an urgent issue, uh, which needs to be dealt with very very soon. And and, um, and and the worst case scenario, and of course, you know, everybody's talking about scenarios now, but the worst case scenario is that this South-South issue will get worse, and it'll be manipulated by southern, Southerners who want to have some stake in the new government. So the, the whole tribal issue in the South will become even more intense than it is now, precisely because they see independence and they see the wealth that will accrue from independence as being a resource worth fighting for. And so you, you have this sort of dominance by the Dinka people at the moment, uh, which, which has been there for, for, for many years, of course. But you've also got the underlying tensions between the Dinka and the Nua, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the issue over the Shuluk, which hasn't been resolved entirely. You've got, uh, you've got most of the agricultural wealth in the southern parts, which is actually mainly at Choli areas of, 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 of southern Sudan. Um, and you've got, uh, you've got all this potential for, for, um, um, for, for a, a conflict between different tribes in the south, which until now has been kept more or less the lid's been kept up, apart from the incident that I mentioned, but but uh, but it could become quite serious if um, if there's not a reasonable distribution of wealth and a reasonable distribution of political uh, capital um, uh, to to these various groups. And um, anyway, I'll leave it like that because I've been talking too long, and I did say I was going to do half an hour, and look at me now.